0: I hope that you will take your Bibles and open to Mark chapter 10. As we continue our study through the gospel of Mark this morning, Mark chapter 10. As you turn there, I wonder how many of you, when you read stories in the Bible, still have images of flannel graph pictures in your mind. I wonder how many of you know what a flannel graph picture is. For me, this is true more often than I care to admit. As I read the stories of the scriptures, I have these pictures in my mind, and frankly, it's something I'm thankful for. I'm thankful that I I grew up in a church that made it a priority to teach the Bible to children, to teach it in a way that was interactive and memorable even with the technology of the day. When I, because of when I grew up, flannel graphs, that was the, the way. And I remember a lot of the pictures, and one in particular that if I could draw, I could recreate it. It's of Jesus in his white robe, of course. He's sitting on a rock, trees in the background. There's one child on his knee, other, chi- other children on the ground, some standing, some sitting. And he's looking at them, and they're looking at him, and everyone's smiling. It's an idyllic picture. And I think of it every time I come to the story in the Gospels where Jesus welcomes the children to come to him. Probably a story you're familiar with, and whether you saw the flannel graph or not, maybe you have a similar picture in your mind of Jesus and children and smiles It's a small story, in the Gospel of Mark it's only four verses, in Matthew and Luke the same story is recorded but done so in three verses. It's a short story and I think it's a story that often gets categorized just as a nice simple interaction, Jesus loves children, that's part of the message. But I think there might be more to this small, simple story than we slow down often enough to consider. In fact, I'd say the story has two parts. First, what we see here is not simply Jesus sitting with children, but Jesus turning societal standards on their heads because a teacher, an important man, welcomed children. We'll talk in a minute about why that's significant. At the same time, what we see is that Jesus is making a statement not only about compassion for children, but about what it takes to enter the kingdom of God. Or to say it another way, it's a warning that there are some, and hear this, there are some who will enter the kingdom of God, and there's some who will not. And in this passage, Jesus helps us to consider What kind of person enters the kingdom? It's a story that may be easy to dismiss, a nice example of the kindness of Christ, but it's more. What we see here is Jesus offering correction to a society that in large part did not value children, and he's also providing a significant teaching about the nature of salvation, about how we come to Jesus. So as we consider the story this morning, I want to encourage you to just consider these two areas of your life. And it may feel like two sermons. I won't charge you extra. Okay? First, how are you doing at loving and welcoming children or those who the world may see as insignificant? Related to that, how well are you doing leading your children or the children you influence towards Jesus. And then second, we're going to consider the nature of the gospel. What it means for us to enter the kingdom. What it means for us to come to Jesus. So no surprises this morning. That's where we're headed. How should we think and care for children? And how do we come into a relationship with Christ? Four verses, Mark chapter 10 I hope you'll follow along as I read. We'll be in verses 13 to 16. Hear the word of God. They were bringing children to Jesus that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms, and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. We certainly ask that God would add his blessing to the reading and to the preaching of his word. Man, even as I just read it, I see that picture again. Jesus, the kids... Like I've already said, the goal this morning is to help us see two things: that there is something here about our care for children, and there's also the aspect in which children are an example for us. Jesus says, "If we're going to enter the kingdom of God, we must be like children." And we might be tempted, and as is often my practice, I'll go and listen to see how other people approach this text and you will find sermons that are all about loving children, and you'll find messages that say, it's not really about children at all, it's all about how we enter the kingdom. And I would say, I think it's both. So let's consider what Jesus would have us to to think about how we approach children, and what does it mean for us to approach Jesus? We start in verse 13, and what we see is that there are people, most likely parents, bringing children to Jesus so that he might touch them. And This is not something that's new in the Gospel of Mark. We have often seen people bringing others to Jesus so that he could touch them. Now, I think in every case up to this point, they've brought people to Jesus because they had some kind of obvious need to be healed, to be made whole, to be released from a demon. This case is different. Here we see parents bringing children who, based on what we have here, have no physical ailment. Not possessed by demons, but they're bringing them to him to be touched, we're told. Now, what what you should know is this is not an uncommon practice. It's something we see examples of in the Old Testament. It's something we see examples of in the Jewish culture this day that it was common for parents to bring children to a rabbi or a priest or to a respected leader to have them offer a prayer of blessing. Jesus is that, he's a respected teacher, and so it's not surprising that there would be people who would want him to offer a blessing for their children. Maybe because they truly understood who Jesus was, or maybe just because they knew he was the popular teacher at the time. But regardless, people are are bringing their children to him. Now, a side note, we won't follow this rabbit trail too far, but some have taken this passage as a proof text for things like infant baptism, okay? That we should bring our children and have a blessing over them that will ensure their entrance into the kingdom of God. I do not believe that is an accurate use of this text. And we won't dive into all the reasons why, but just to, in case that's a background that you're familiar with. However, I do think this text is instructive. And it's a good opportunity for us to consider the responsibility that each of us has towards children. Not baptism, not, kind of, not a traditional religious ceremony, but what we do see here is that there are parents who had good intentions. They are bringing their children to a man who represents God. We know it is God. And they want a blessing. And perhaps this is a good reminder for us of our calling as parents or as those who influence children. We have a responsibility towards our children, don't we? We can go to Deuteronomy 6, and we can read the law about what God says about teaching and instructing our children morning and noon and night. Go to Deuteronomy 6. That might be a good passage. Parents, if you want to read, read Deuteronomy 6. Or you can go to Ephesians chapter 6, where we're told to raise up our kids in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. As parents, as grandparents, as aunts and uncles or friends, God has given us this privilege of shepherding children to help them recognize who God is, who they are, their need for Him and what it looks like to follow Him. You say, I don't don't know if it's a direct teaching from this passage. Okay. But isn't this a good reminder of how we relate to children? We should not miss the opportunity to be reminded of what a high calling we've been entrusted with. Friends, if you, as I know you do, if you care well for your kids physically and you make sure they get the best education possible, And if you go another step and you teach them good morals and good manners, you have done well. But you've neglected the most important thing. You have been called to care for the souls of your children. And even if they're happy and polite and well-educated, their souls can be dark and headed to hell. We must help them know Jesus, love Jesus, trust Jesus. Now, let me say this because there are some of you who have been faithful, and your children don't know Jesus, and they don't love Jesus, and they don't trust Him. And I recognize that's a burden. Can I encourage you? Keep being faithful. And know this, you cannot save your children. And I wish you could bring them to me and I could baptize them and bless them. And it was as easy as that. We can't change the hearts of our children, but oh, we must be faithful to help them see him rightly. We must lead them towards him, both through what we say, that might be the easy part, but also in the way we live. We must be examples to our children. That may have been a bit of an an aside. What we have in our text are children being brought to Jesus so that he can touch them or bless them. And then we see the response of the disciples. They were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. Now, that word, if you've been with us through our study of Mark, it's a word we've heard. Usually it's used when Jesus is standing in front of someone who's possessed with a demon and he rebukes the demon and cast it out, it's a strong word, a rebuke. It's not clear if he's rebuking the children or the parents, but nevertheless, the disciples stand up and they make it clear that Jesus is not seeing children today. Now, if we were to have a conversation with them, they may say, we're we're, we're trying to protect him. There's always crowds, he's tired, We're just doing our part to help. Best case scenario. Worst case, they saw Jesus and they saw the children and said, he's too important and they're too insignificant. If you've been with us, you know the disciples have a pretty rocky track record of knowing when and how they should be involved. We can go back just to chapter 9. Remember, the disciples come to Jesus and they say, hey, we saw a man casting out demons in your name and we told him to stop. Jesus said, what are you doing? He's for us. Here again, we see a situation where they stand up and do the work that they think they should do to protect Jesus, to protect his reputation, to protect his time. But they've misjudged what Jesus would have them do. And of course, assuming that the chronology of Mark reflects the actual timeline, this is not long after they had sat in Peter's home. And Jesus had taken a child and put him on his lap. We read back in chapter 9, verse 36, Jesus took a child Put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Jesus, not long before this, had given them a very specific example of the importance of children and of receiving them. But again, we see the disciples are having a hard time putting into practice what they've learned. Maybe you know what that's like. Take heart. We all have room to grow, and we see the disciples, we see their failures very clearly. People are bringing children to Jesus, and the disciples rebuke them. And while they may have expected Jesus to thank them, that's not what they get. Verse 14, when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. It's not a common word in English, perhaps for you and it's not a common word in the original language. This is a strong word expressing the anger of Jesus. Righteous anger, but anger nonetheless. Now we've seen over and over that Jesus has disagreements and he corrects the disciples. Often they do things that deserve correction, but never before have we been told that he was indignant towards them. Only here. Jesus is not saying, hey guys, hey, don't worry about it. I'll I'll see the kids for a minute. That's not what's going on here. He is angered at their their rebuke of the crowd. And we have to assume it's because Jesus knew something about the disciples' hearts. Once again, they had their eyes and their focus in the wrong place. No doubt they thought too little of the children. They weren't significant enough. Jesus did not need to give them any of his time and honestly that would have been a very common way of thinking during this time it's worth remembering that this was not a culture that valued children highly this is different than us for us most of us grew up in a place and where families were child-centric that wasn't the case at this time children became useful 13 14 15 but before that, they were a necessary obligation. Loved, cared for, I think so. But not prioritized the way we tend to prioritize our kids today. All that to say, children were meant to be seen and not heard. And it would not have surprised anyone if Jesus dismissed them. But that highlights for us what he does, doesn't it? Verse 14. When Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. The disciples rebuked them, and they tried to send them away, and he says, no, don't stop them. People like them belong to the kingdom of God. And Notice he does not say that these children in particular belong to the kingdom of God. He says, "Such as these." It's not about the children as much as what they represent. We'll come back to that. Some have, some have used this passage to argue for the innocence of children. What does it mean that such as these are part of the kingdom of God? And someone would say, "Well, it's because they're innocent. They're pure. And the kingdom of God is for those who are innocent and pure. But that's not consistent with the teaching of scriptures. The scriptures are clear that we are all sinners in need of a Savior. None of us are innocent and pure, all of us are born in sin. You'll see my son today. He's wearing a little vest and a little tie. He looks great. And he's a sinner, born in sin. What Jesus is pointing to here is not the merit of young children, but their helplessness and their dependence, and perhaps their awareness of their helplessness and their dependence. Now the next story in Mark, and often these two stories are told together, you know that I don't have the discipline to bring that many, that big a section together, but they could be brought together thematically because in the next passage we see the story of a rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and asks, how can I enter the kingdom of heaven? He comes and he lays out his good works. But Jesus reminds him, the kingdom is for those who receive it through faith. It's for the person who recognizes that they don't have anything to offer and who trusts in God completely. The children represent that kind of person. The person who recognizes, I can't do anything to earn it. It's all of him. We'll come back to that. But before we do, before we say more about what the children symbolize, let's just consider Jesus' action towards these actual children. The disciples want to send them away, and Jesus welcomes them. Again, a culture that does not place a high priority on children, but this is now the second time in two chapters when we see Jesus showing care for children. In our world, we would not think this uncommon. In fact, we would think Jesus is a good politician. Welcoming the children and showing care. But this was a different time. Children, like I said, were a necessary obligation. Yet Jesus did what many would not do. He brought them close. And we see there, if you skip to verse 16, he takes them in his arms. He doesn't keep them at a distance. He brings them close. He blesses them, laying his hands on them. It's an example of his compassion and his love for those who the world sees insignificant. They can't come on their own, but they're brought to him, and he receives them. We have to keep in mind, again, the culture behind the flannel graph picture. This was not expected. It was not required. But Jesus shows kindness. I think if we're short-sighted, we can come to this text and just see it as a, a nice story. But it should be an example for us. That we should be a people who show care and compassion for those who God puts in our lives, who others may consider insignificant. They should be loved. And they are loved best when we point them to Jesus. Jesus. And obviously, this application is most relevant to parents, but it's not only for parents. All of us have opportunities to come alongside and to invest in children. Maybe that means you need to sign up for the nursery. That's what I should say, right? My wife asked me to say this. No, No, maybe it means that you would invest in kids through serving in the nursery, through teaching a class. That's a great way to have scheduled time to invest in children. But maybe it's not that formal. Maybe for you, it starts with having a conversation with a child who's running past you (laughs) in the church, right? Can I tell you, as a a father of young children, they remember it if Mr. Stephen talks to them. Or Miss Julie or Kevin because while they don't fault you, they are used to people walking past them. But when you stop and you care well, well for a child, you know what you're doing? You're not only loving them in that moment, but you're showing them that the people of God who gather together and proclaim that God loves them, we're demonstrating that love for them. Or we could sing and we could help one another and we could ignore our children and our telling of them that Jesus loves them may ring hollow because they've not been loved well by the people of God. This isn't a rebuke. On the whole, I think we do this well as a church, but can I encourage you to keep doing good and don't grow weary in well-doing? I ask this selfishly because I've got three of my own, but we all share this responsibility together to love our children towards Jesus. And if you're not a parent would you help us? Would you let them know that the people who claim Jesus as their savior love them? And by all means, if you have the opportunity, would you share the gospel with them? Now parents, we share the greatest responsibility. It's been given to us by God. And I want to encourage you to think carefully. If you're married, this is a good use of your time. Spend time with your spouse discussing what it looks like for you to be strategic in pointing your kids towards Christ. Don't take for granted that it's going to happen. Make a plan. If you're a single parent, do the same. Make a plan and then reach out to others and ask for their help and their support in working out your plan. We must work together. There are things that we should all be doing. First we can show our kids their need for Jesus by prioritizing the local church. Having them in a place where they hear us talk, sing and pray where they recognize that we are confessing our need and that we rely on someone bigger than us. We can show our kids their need for Jesus by prioritizing prayer in our homes and not only at meal times. They need to hear you praying with them and for them. They need to hear you reading the scriptures. They need to hear you sharing the gospel with them. I'm glad that we have teachers who take the opportunity to do that here. They need to hear you tell them of their need. And of course, we lead our kids towards Jesus when we live in a way that puts the gospel on display. This is hard. But we must live what we say we believe, even in our homes, or especially in our homes. Let them see you trusting Jesus in hard times. Let them see you modeling obedience. Let them see you being gracious when you're wronged, thankful when you're blessed. It's one of the reasons I'm really thankful for the study we're doing on Wednesday nights. It's why I think it's important. We've been talking about being peacemakers, especially in our homes. We must have homes that model what it looks like to live in peace, to live with forgiveness. This is a way we demonstrate the gospel in front of our kids. This is a proclamation of the gospel. There's a lot we could say about this. Parents, we must lead our children to Jesus. And that's in part the encouragement we have here in this passage. But if we stop there, we probably miss the most important part of what God would have us see in this text. There is something to be said for how we interact with children, but in this passage, children are also an example. He says, if we're going to enter the kingdom of God, we must be like children. Verse 14. When Jesus saw it, he was indignant and he said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them for such belongs to the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Now, let's just go back to the basics for just a moment. What is the kingdom of God? Maybe that's not language that you use a lot. We see... In these verses, we see that people possess the kingdom. It belongs to them. They receive the kingdom. They enter into the kingdom. And we could have a long discussion about the way the Bible speaks of the kingdom of God. But let me just give you a simple definition. The kingdom of God is the rule and the reign of God. And any realm where that exists. So there's a sense now in which we can be a part of the kingdom of God as we acknowledge his rule and reign over us. If you're in that position where he is your king, you are a part of the kingdom of God. But we also know there will come a time when God will come and he will establish his kingdom physically on earth. And we will live forever for all eternity as his people in his kingdom. So how do we get there? How do we enter into it spiritually now and physically for all eternity? What does it mean to be a part of that kingdom? We know both from the scriptures and from probably your personal experience, most people assume or believe or are convinced that we enter the kingdom of God based on what we do, that we gain entrance into the kingdom of God by doing certain things or not doing certain things, by going certain places or not going certain places, by having certain parents or not having certain parents, of being baptized in a certain way or The list goes on. We saw this in the Pharisees, haven't we, throughout the Gospel of Mark? The Pharisees fixed their hope on their keeping of the commandments. Others trust in family lineage or heritage. What about you? What are you trusting in to get you into the kingdom of God? There's only one right answer. Jesus says, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Or to say it positively, only those who receive the kingdom of God like a child shall enter. So what does that mean? That seems pretty important, right? If you do this, you enter. If you don't, you don't. What does it mean to enter like a child? We must know. Well, to go back to what I said earlier, what this does not mean is innocence. Innocence. You can breathe a sigh of relief it doesn't mean being morally perfect if you have children you can confirm children are not actually pictures of innocence and moral uprightness regardless of what instagram may show you there's more there and the bible is clear about this as well all have sinned and fall short of the glory of god there is none righteous no not one jesus is not suggesting that these children somehow merited the kingdom of god based on something they possess No, I believe Jesus' point to the reality that children don't have anything to offer at all. And that's the point. Luke actually says that people are bringing infants to Jesus, which really highlights the point. They're helpless. They're completely dependent. They have no credit. They have no clout. They have no claim. A child doesn't have anything to bring. Whatever they receive is a gift. The Pharisees came to Jesus thinking they were good enough. The disciples struggle at times with thinking that somehow they were great. The message here is that you cannot belong to the kingdom of God unless you recognize how helpless you are. Those who receive the kingdom of God are those who recognize their need for grace. Those who enter the kingdom of God are those who come like children. We enter like children or we don't enter at all. To such belong the kingdom. I appreciate this description enough that I put it on your notes so that you would have it. The commentator said, children are helpless. Their lives are in the hands of another. They don't know all they need, but they know they need the help of another. And they are hopeful they will receive it. They come small, helpless, and powerless. They have no clout or standing. They bring nothing but empty hands. This is appropriate, since only empty hands can be filled. It's contrary to the way we think, isn't it? But you cannot earn the kingdom of God. You can't obtain the kingdom of God based on anything you do. And what we know is that we can't have it because it's given to us freely. And it's given to us freely because the price has already been paid. It's not free because there was no cost. It's free because the cost was paid. Jesus, not long after this, would walk towards Jerusalem where he would be betrayed, convicted, and crucified. And while he was killed by the hands of sinful men, it was ordained by God that he would die. And when he died, he would take on the wrath of God for sinful men. The Bible tells us that anyone who comes to him in faith and accepts his payment for sins on their behalf will be forgiven. And granted entrance to the kingdom of God. And yet if we think we can add anything to the work he's done, then we don't understand the situation. We must come as children, admitting our weakness, our helplessness, our need. And we can go to many other places in scripture to understand this more fully. I'll give you two. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith and it's not of your own doing it is a gift of God not a result of works so that no one may boast Paul says it this way in Titus chapter 3 verse 4 when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our savior appeared he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is good news. You cannot earn it. But you can receive it through faith. I mentioned earlier that the story after this, what we see next week will actually help us understand this concept more fully. In the Gospel of Luke, he tells the same story afterwards, but he he leads into this story about Jesus welcoming the children with a parable of Christ. Luke 18, let me just read it for you, starting in verse 9. He says, Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and one a tax collector, the Pharisee being the religious leader, The tax collector being thought of as most as a thief and a crook. These two men go into the temple. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed this way. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Now, the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, the, the tax collector, he went down to his house justified. What does that mean? Made right before God. Not the other. Not the man that everyone saw as religious. Jesus says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Luke gives this parable, and then he goes in and he tells the story of Jesus welcoming children. He says, only those who come like a child will enter the kingdom of God. We bring nothing to the table, we enter like children, or we don't enter at all. And I want to say this, if you're here this morning and you're thinking, I do not know if I have done that. I don't know if I've entered the kingdom of God. I don't know if I'm in right standing with him. I don't know if my sins are forgiven. This is good news. You can know that you're part of the kingdom of God if you place your faith in him, if you trust him. Repent of your sins. Trust that he's paid the price that you owe. It means admitting your helplessness. It means not trusting in all the things that you thought made you right before God. If this is something you have questions about, I would love to talk to you. There's many of us who would love to talk to you about this. For those of you who are Christians, if you're confident that you have been welcomed into the kingdom of God, how should this impact, how should this impact us? What, how should we think about this reality? Let me give you three things to consider and then we'll be done. First, remember this. We enter by faith and now we must live by faith. And I think this is a temptation that that many of us face. We proclaim theologically and convictionally that we are saved by faith and we wake up every day trying to earn again the love of God. Friend, You are his. You are loved by God. Now live by faith. Paul says it this way in Galatians 2 or 3. He says, Let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by the hearing of faith? It's a rhetorical question. They were saved by faith. We can fall into this trap. Having begun by faith, we try to perfect ourselves by the flesh. I want to encourage you this morning. The kingdom of God is for those who receive it by faith. And as those who have been saved by faith, we are called to live by faith. Now, to be clear, the second thing, as those who have entered the kingdom by faith, we should live as faithful citizens of the kingdom. So do you see the distinction here? there are things we are called to do. We've been saved by faith unto good works. We're called to hate sin and to flee from sin and to fight against sin. But not so we earn his favor. But this is what it means to be a faithful citizen of the kingdom of God. Out of gratitude and out of joy, we obey him. So I've thought about the description of living as a person of faith. A childlike faith, I was reminded of the Sermon on the Mount, often described as a description of life in the kingdom. Matthew 5, blessed are the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And what he's not saying here is if we do these things, we will get this. But he's saying if you are a citizen of the kingdom, you will live this way. And therefore, you are the kind of person who are his. It's been well established. We enter by faith. But as those who are citizens of the kingdom, we should live with meekness and mercy and purity and peace. We enter by faith, we live by faith. As those who have entered the kingdom of God by faith, we should live as faithful citizens of the kingdom. And finally, as those who have entered the kingdom by faith, we must share the gospel of the kingdom. And what a great message we have to share. That people can be welcomed into the kingdom of God now and for all time through faith. Faith not because they're good enough and not because they've earned it, but because Jesus has died to offer forgiveness. Most people believe that their right standing before God is something that must be earned, and they just hope that the odds are stacked in their favor before their life ends. And we can offer them hope that's better than that. Your eternity can be secure. This is the message we have been commanded to take to the world, and we must be faithful. And I want to encourage you specifically this morning to consider your responsibility to take this message to your children and to your nieces and to your nephews and those whom God has placed in your realm of influence. Let's be faithful to bring them to Jesus. May we never be like those who hinder them. Let's not put a stumbling block in their way. Bring them to Christ and know this, that if we bring them He will receive them. Jesus welcomes all who come to him in faith. So let's be faithful in showing them the way.